I'm Janine Teagues. I've been teaching second grade here at Abbott Elementary for a year now. I'd say the main problem in the school district is no money. But we just make do. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And that was a clip from one of my very favorite shows, Abbott Elementary. It was created by and stars Quinta Brunson, who plays a second grade teacher, Janine Teagues. And the sitcom follows Janine and her fellow teachers as they navigate life in and out of the classroom in a struggling Philadelphia public school. Now, Last week on Unladylike's Instagram, I put out a call for teachers, like asking how y'all's back to school is going. And I used a screen cap from the Abbott Elementary pilot where Janine is explaining that out of 20 new teachers, she is one of just three to make it through to a second year at Abbott Elementary. And I heard from an unlady named Samantha who said, all I can say is that this is still too real, which is why I support Abbott Elementary without watching it because it's too much for me. As an educator in a quote unquote urban underserved area who came to education through Teach for America and is entering their 11th year, I love what I do, but it's a lot. I also heard from a teacher named Madison who said, I'm tired coming back, but I'm only in my third year, so I still feel hopeful in my efforts to make change. My district isn't a bad one, but hearing from teachers in Florida right now makes my heart sad and angry. And I also heard from a teacher named Elizabeth who simply said, we've had two hard lockdowns already, facepalm emoji. And I will say that many unladies responded with with just the cry face emoji or the melting smile face emoji. Like, I think it's safe to say that it is hard out there for the more than 3 million public school educators in the U.S. who are tasked with teaching nearly 50 million K-12 through students across the country. And as I was thinking about this episode, I knew I wanted to talk about teachers public school teachers specifically, but I didn't even know where to start. There are so many threads we could pull on on ladies, starting with the gender wage gap in teaching, starting with the fact that teaching is, yes, overwhelmingly women, but it is also overwhelmingly white women. Teaching has, in other words, a diversity problem. We could talk about standardized testing, teachers unions, how groups like Moms for Liberty are coming for school board elections this fall. Watch out for those Moms for Liberty, y'all. And for a hot second, I didn't even know if I could pull off an episode because there is simply so much we could discuss. Instead, I am taking a cue from today's second guest, an elementary education associate professor, Sarah Jones, and using, yes, Abbott Elementary, a television show, as our gateway to start a conversation. Because I I do think I will have to have a follow-up to this episode, but... I wanted to use Abbott as a way to talk about issues teachers are facing and issues with the teaching pipeline in the U.S. that goes above and beyond the need to pay teachers more and fully resource classrooms. And even if like on Lady Samantha, you can't or simply don't watch Abbott Elementary. That's not a problem. All you really need to know is that this hilarious, heartwarming, Emmy-winning show 
also weaves in realities about teacher shortages, charter schools, race and class bias in determining which students get matched with what teachers, and also dealing with really inept administrators. Most of all, though, it centers Black teachers and students and public school in a way that pop culture really hasn't before, and in ways that really matter. Case in point, today's first guest. So my name is Jada Wooten. I'm a rising senior at Brown studying education studies and dance. And I think I came to that path because when I went away to boarding school at the George School in Newtown, Pennsylvania, um, it was my first time taking dance classes and realizing just how much access to dance varied. So I got really interested in dance education, but also thinking about educational equity issues, like who has access to arts, who doesn't. So I applied to Brown with that goal in mind. At the same time, I was working at one of my local community centers in Ann Arbor, and I was teaching dance there um, and art. And I don't know, dance is freedom. Like mm. for some of the kids, just being able to take off their shoes and do freeze dance um, was really exciting. So I ended up doing kind of this community engaged project where I was doing ethnographic research, but also thinking about what art can do for equity in K through 12 spaces, how, yes, art can be decor that speaks to your values, but also the process of like creating together can be revolutionary. And just the product can also be a miracle. Thinking about community centers and schoolwork, also done some work like in nursing homes too, teaching dance. And it's amazing because my like oldest student is 103. Oh, <laughs> and yet, no. <laughs> and yes, we're seated and it's modified, but we're still all like dancing and moving together and experiencing that like sense of joy. And I've TA'd kind of a mix of dance and education classes. And then on top of my experience this summer at the Mystic Seaport Museum, like specifically making diverse lesson plans, I think across all that work, whether it be in a school, in a community center, at the university, in a nursing home, in the museum, all of it has kind of cycled around education and dance and equity. In February, you wrote a piece headlined, What Abbott Elementary Taught Me About AP African American Studies and Black Educational Equity. So first, Mm -hmm. why did you want to write it? It's funny because I actually did not want to write it at first. Um, So the the Brown Daily Herald actually contacted me, and it's because of my involvement both in the Black Student Union at the time I was the vice president, and I'm currently one of the co-presidents, and also my involvement in Students for Educational Equity at Brown. Um, And so they were really interested in my perspective of like the intersectionality of those two positions on top of it being Black History Month and also what was happening with AP African-American history in Florida. And honestly, when I was contacted, I was like, part of the reason why I didn't know if I should write the piece is like, I don't know if it's what they want to hear. Like Mm. the Brown Daily Herald is like, you know, predominantly kind of white journal. There's other institutions like the Black Star Journal where I might've been a little more trusting that the story would have come across the way I wanted it to be. But at the same time, time, I'm thinking about the audience of the Brown Daily Herald. It's also one of the biggest newspapers at Brown. It reaches the widest alumni base. And so the audience would be different. It wouldn't maybe be like preaching to the choir if I wrote with another piece. So ultimately, I decided to do it. I realized that I feel like a lot of people were asking me that question. It wasn't just the Brown Daily Herald. It was like everyone kind of in my daily interactions because I bring myself and that students for educational equity background and that black student union background in every space I go into. And I realized was that I was kind of tired of answering the question. I was tired of feeling like everyone was solely relying on like black educators. And so while I was doing that reflecting and thinking what I realized I wanted my piece to be, it was like a love letter to kind of black teachers and a note about how not only do we as black educators need to prioritize more self-care, but also how the world needs to care for us more. Because when something like AP African-American history happens, or most recently in Florida, where they said, you know, that slaves and slave people learn skills that were beneficial to them. Like when something like that happens, they always fall on us to like kind of tell that story and debunk the myth. 
And while it's important to kind of center Black voices and Black experiences when it comes to Black education, like the work can't solely be on us. Um, and so I ended up writing it thinking like, I don't know if this is what they'll want. Um, it ended up being the piece I wanted. And I didn't even know that I wanted that piece to happen. So what, to uh, play off of the, the headline for the piece, what did Abbott teach you? One of the episodes I reference in the article is specifically, I think it's pretty early on the season, season one. It's like the second or third episode where Janine, who I feel like is kind of my kindred spirit, like she's kind of the young teacher coming into the space, trying to get everything done. Um, she like burns herself out completely. Like she didn't eat that day. She's trying to change the light bulb that's scaring one of the kids. And like, they won't even enter the building because of the creepy light bulb. Oh God, can someone please help me down? And why would we do that since you clearly caused this situation? Okay, I didn't know doing this would cause all the power to go out. Well, the power is not all out. It's on in some places and off in others. Yeah, it's off in my room. On in the gym. Yeah, it's off in my room. Thank God we got the AC or we'd all be melting already. Okay, best thing to do in these situations is just stay calm and then we'll okay. call. Okay, this is it, y'all. The end times. It's three months early, but it's happening. Ah, don't take the ladder. And the AC, like, shuts off and then all of a sudden, like, she passes out. And for me, like, that was kind of a lesson about burnout. Like, yes, there is so much to do to right the wrongs in our educational system, but you can't do all of it at once. Um, and, like, that's the piece I chose to center in my article, mainly because I was thinking about care and love for Black teachers and educators. But as a whole, Abbott Elementary has taught me so much. Um, so, And it's, like, also a place of comfort for me because... I watch it with my mom, who is also an educator, um, mainly in university spaces. And on top of that, like, she's from Philly. Oh. Um, and so, <laughs> so, like, when, so it's not only that it relates to us as educators, but, like, some of the Philly slang, like, relates to us. Or, like, she says, like, watching Ab Elementary is, like, seeing her school, like, depicted on television. And so, one, like, I love the show and not only chose to focus it because the way it shows a wide range of what it means to be a Black educator but also like it's a piece of comfort to me. And I've learned so much, not just about burnout, but I think this this show does a really good job of depicting issues that face K through 12, such as sub shortages or the charter school versus public school debate. Um, and it does it in a way where it feels like relatable. I've come across that in instances in my career already, even though I'm like only 21, where it's like I'm teaching some of these dance classes and like the dance floors um, are like really slippery for some students or they risk injury because it's not bouncy enough for other students. And so like advocating for like physical conditions is like one of the many things, but then also like the kind of tough conversations you have to have. And I feel like for Janine, sometimes it's like tough conversations with like a parent because such, such and such isn't getting to school on time. And I think although I'm mainly working in spaces where I don't interact with parents as much, I still have had like tough conversations with professors where it's like, as a TA, I'm kind of intermediary. So I'd be like, students are kind of feeling this way. I understand how the students are feeling and the teaching team is feeling. Or this kid kid who's acting out at the community center, um, they're actually acting out because they just understand everything already. Like they need more challenging material. The way Janine advocates, it's both like the physical space and the sense of belonging that comes with having a safe space physically, but also the sense of belonging that comes knowing you belong like spiritually and emotionally. Are there any, I mean, aside from your parents who are educators, but like <laughs> you said, more in the uh, like higher ed context, are there any yeah. teacher role models that mm. you have looked up to along the way? I'm like tech, like a third generation educator. So my dad's dad was a public school teacher in Atlanta public schools. And my mom's mom was a public school teacher in Philadelphia public schools. Um, and so like both of kind of those lineages, like working in public schools, serving predominantly black, black youth in kind of both of those districts. Um, I feel like it's just part of like the family lineage that inspires me. And it's not just my maternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather. There's a plethora of aunties and uncles and cousins who all are in that education space. Um, and so part of it is just like the numerous Black educators in my family, both those I know and those 
who I don't know. Uh, and I think another source of inspiration for me is all the people who kind of came before me and doing this work in the places I'm in specifically. So I think about growing up in Ann Arbor, which I mentioned, um, and it's one of these predominantly white liberal college towns, but some of these predominantly white liberal college towns like Ann Arbor, like Berkeley have the biggest black white achievement gap. So like Mm -hmm. knowing all the educators who worked to address, even though it's still an issue, like the black white achievement gaps in the districts. And then having kind of taken some courses that intersect black studies and education studies, I feel like there's also just this history and broader narrative of Black educators also being kind of advocates and activists. Um, So there's this one text we read called Fugitive Pedagogy, and it talks about, you know, certain enslaved people who were teachers, or there are certain times when Black teachers, they had to read a prescribed text, and they would have the prescribed text, like, on their desk, but they'd actually be teaching what they wanted to teach, Um, because at first education was kind of meant to brainwash and actually teach people to, you know, make decisions in the world, especially people of color. And so I think it's all the people who came before me and part of it is knowing it's in my family lineage, but part of it's knowing that there are black educators beyond my family who have done this work and like who want this work to continue. And ladies, I have a new drinking ritual that I have to share with you. For the past few weeks, I have been swapping out my mid-morning coffee break for a mid-morning AG1 break. Sometimes I'll make myself a little refreshing smoothie, put my AG1 powder in, or I will just drink it with water, shake, 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 and it leaves me feeling truly more energized and more focused. This is not a detox or weight loss supplement, none of that stuff that unladies are not interested in. No. AG1 is an all-in-one foundational nutrition formula that makes it easier for me to cover my nutritional bases every day. It is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients that give major benefits like gut health, boosted energy, even healthier-looking skin, hair, and nails. With AG1, taking good care of my body each day is really that simple. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com unladylike. That's drinkag one dot com slash unladylike. Check it out. Talk to me a little bit about what education equity means to you as a Black teacher and for mm-hmm. black teachers in general, as opposed to, you know, education equity for on the student end. Mm. I think as a teacher, educational equity is about the issues, thinking about the issues not only in the way I teach them, but also outside of my classrooms. And so thinking about the most recent kind of Florida news about about how Florida teachers are supposed to teach about slavery. Obviously, one of the flaws is that you shouldn't be using slavery and beneficial in the same sentence, but it's also just historically inaccurate. Like they say that enslaved people learned these skills for slavery that were beneficial, but a lot of enslaved people brought skills with them when they came here. And so being at Mystic Seaport Museum and learning a lot about maritime history, it was actually predominantly Black people who were swimming at first and white people could not like swim, did, were not go near the water. They thought swimming looked like the devil possessing people. I've learned about Black people's like farming skills. I learned about when they wanted to first grow rice in South Carolina, they brought enslaved Africans who already knew how to grow rice. I think it's important not only to think about how we teach slavery from the standpoint of, yes, we shouldn't like 
like no student should be learning it's beneficial, but also I feel like there's not enough credit given to black brilliance, black resilience, black excellence, um, historically and presently. I always try to be there for all of my students, tell them diverse stories, the stories that aren't traditionally taught in, you know, their history classes or whatever classes were coming before, but it also means when something like the affirmative action rally happens at Brown, even if it's last minute, I'll end up being there. I'll end up speaking type of thing. And so I feel like in general, there's a sense amongst black teachers that it's not only what you do in the classroom, but outside of the classroom too. In terms of the kind of classroom instruction that you've gotten at Brown, like in your education courses, do they address that aspect of it in terms of the additional like emotional labor that Black teachers are often expected to carry out the default expectations there? I don't think so. And I I find this issue in a lot of my classes where the education department at Brown is so much better than other departments in a lot of aspects of actually teaching, like, what do we do in schools that have students who are multilingual learners, students who have a diverse array of racial and ethnic backgrounds, students have a diverse array of abilities. Like, the education department is so good at thinking about that. But the problem is, is being at a predominantly white institution, I feel like oftentimes they're teaching these issues in a way where they're kind of catering it to white students. Mm. And so when we're reading kind of maybe about microaggressions in the classroom, for a lot of the white students, it's their first time hearing about it. And like, that's what I experienced throughout my life in the educational system, like going to these predominantly white schools. There was times when I wasn't tracked the same way my peers were. Like I distinctly remember being in fourth grade and I was helping this white boy solve his higher level math problems, but my teacher wouldn't move me up in higher level math. Mm. And then finally, when I was in higher level math, I remember how isolating it was to be the only black student. And then on top of that, you'll likely be the one who's not only addressing those issues inside and outside the classroom. And so I don't think the education system, like, or I guess teacher preparation as a whole, really thinks about teaching these issues in a way where it thinks about both kind of, or it thinks about all types of students. Because not only can sometimes reading about these instances be re-triggering, re-traumatic if you already have been through them, um, but then there's no kind of support to think about that emotional labor that comes with if you already experienced it and you're also continuing to advocate so that the next generation has better. A lot of times in sort of like the public discourse about teachers, it generally revolves around or even just boils down to like, give teachers a raise. Let's pay teachers more, you know, and which fully support. Absolutely. Also, are there issues beyond that that you wish got more attention and more conversation? Yeah, I think uh, the issue with give teachers a raise is not that teachers don't want to raise, like teachers deserve to have a raise, they deserve to be respected in U.S. society, is you're thinking about just one point in like the teacher kind of pipeline. You're thinking about just once they're a teacher. And in reality, we need to think about it, like everything about as a pipeline, we think about the way that teachers are recruited, the way that teachers are prepared, what happens in the classroom, and then what happens if that teacher ultimately leaves the classroom. And so like, yes, teachers in the classroom deserve a raise, but we also need to think about how are we even getting our group of teachers. And we think about the teacher landscape in the U.S., we know it's predominantly white females. And so what are ways that we can get what not only value education higher in society, but like recruit people and recruit people in ways where it's financially feasible. Because the other thing is, is if you think about it, a lot of schools right now want you to have a master's. And if you just went in to student debt, which predominantly affects women of color to get your undergrad, then it's not like feasible for you to kind of get your master's and go into that pipeline of education. And so one, it's like thinking about how can we financially support people going into the field of teaching? How can we make teaching seem like a thing that's more accessible? Because I mean, if you look at the pandemic, if you look like what teachers had to go through with Black Lives Matter, it's not an appealing option. So it's how do we make it more appealing of an option from the start? How do we financially support a more diverse body of students from the start into becoming teachers? But then part of it 
is that teacher preparation. As I mentioned, if you're feeling like myself, like, yes, we're addressing those educational equity issues, but we're only thinking about white students learning it for the first time and not students of color who are getting re-triggered learning that stuff. Part of it is having those spaces in teacher preparation program to have affinity groups, to have those conversations about, one, the trauma that students of color may have gone through in school, but two, the ways they're doing additional work to fix fix those systems for their students. And so, so first, kind of thinking about the recruitment and this financial support. Second, thinking about the teacher preparation, those spaces for teachers of colors who are developing. And then third, similarly, thinking about not only like pay raises for teachers, but again, how do you continue to support teachers, um, specifically teachers of color? Because um, you shouldn't just have those spaces in teacher preparation. Those should be something that continue. Because a lot of times when, you know, people leave the field, it's because of feelings like racial isolation or burnout. And so if you have that continual support network, in addition to that financial support while you're teaching, you may be less likely to leave the field. But then in addition, we need to think about why teachers are leaving. I think pay raises are one conversation, but ultimately the whole conversation needs to not only be about financial support, but also mental and emotional support. And it needs to think about the whole pipeline, not just teachers in the classroom. When you meet people and tell them, you know, you're a teacher, these are your plans, you're really invested in it. What kinds of reactions do you get? (laughs) I get a a wide range of reactions and I feel like they're both, it's like, it's two of the extremes, honestly. So like on the one hand, there's like this super positive reaction that's like, oh my goodness, like to be doing this like work, like you're a saint. And I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm just a human. (laughs) Um, And like, this is important work. Like we need to be thinking about this as a society. And then on the other hand, there's like people, especially I feel like the combination of like being at Brown and Ivy League, like this perception that I work so hard to get there and they're like, oh, you're you're just going to be a teacher type of thing. And so I feel like the reactions I get are always kind of on the two extremes, unless I'm meeting someone else who's doing the work. And then I feel like it's not only positive, like encouraging me to do this work because we need more Black educators, but it's also positive in the sense that they can give me advice on like where I should go in my career going forward. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you about teaching, education, equity, Abbott Elementary, anything (laughs) that you want to make sure (laughs) listeners know? Well, about Abbott Elementary, I'm definitely excited for season three. (laughs) I'm so excited. Like I saw this BuzzFeed article on my feed about like, what can we expect in season three? (laughs) Like literally today. So it was perfect prep for this, this conversation. Like Jada and me, our next guest is an Abbott Elementary fan. So much so she's teaching a seminar course on the show next semester, which we'll get into that in a few minutes. I am Sarah Jones. I am currently an assistant professor of elementary education uh, literacy at Illinois State University in Bloomington Normal, Illinois. Um, And I am a faculty member. I am working with our undergraduate, primarily undergraduate pre-service teachers and getting them ready to go into the classroom to become teachers. No small task. (laughs) No, no pressure, right? No pressure So why did you want to become a teacher? I feel like I kind of sometimes hate to admit it, but I was definitely that like cliche of, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I, you know, was lining my dolls up and playing school. And legitimately, I remember my mom telling me one day that like, I actually wrote lesson plans. And I don't know how as like a little kid, I knew that that was a thing that teachers did. I feel like that's often the invisible work, right? But I would have my like little Etch-A-Sketch lesson plan of like, first we will do this, then we will do this. Um, And so really seeing that as the goal was always, always the vision. And when I think back and kind of, think about, well, what did I envision, right? I envisioned being a teacher in a school much like the one that I attended, right? And so I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. And so my elementary school was predominantly white, middle-class, suburban. And it wasn't until I went to college and was in the elementary education program and majoring in that, that I started to get a deeper understanding of, oh, like my school experience, which I 
loved, right, isn't necessarily what everyone's is in both good and bad ways. That really kind of changed the course and trajectory of my career. I did not end up going back to teach in a small suburban town um, like I always thought I would. I I graduated and I taught in Washington, D.C. for almost a decade. And so that was just a different experience, a different perspective. Tell me a little bit more about how it was different. So I went to Elon University, which is in North Carolina, not in an urban context, right? And so as I was kind of approaching the end of undergrad and thinking about where do I want to teach and what do I want to do, I kind of just got this drive based on the conversations that were had in classes and coursework and media representations, which I can talk about shortly, of like, I want to make Mm -hmm. a difference, right? I want to um, be that teacher. And to me, that meant I need to go work in an urban school, right? And so I applied for jobs in a number of different places, got a job in Washington, D.C., and then in during the interview process, actually kind of quickly realized, oh, I don't know if I'm fully actually prepared for this. Like I'm prepared in a lot of ways, right? I can lesson plan. I can, um, like, I know what to teach and how to teach it. But like, this is a very different context than I'm used to. DC, like I think many cities and urban environments, uh, very diverse, but also very segregated within mm. the city. Um, and so the neighborhoods and the schools that I taught at for the the extent of my career were predominantly mm-hmm. Black um, and in historically Black neighborhoods. And also, tor- especially towards the end of my teaching, historically Black na- neighborhoods that were facing gentrification, um, which is, I think, an, an issue that lots of schools and places are facing. The teaching staff that I worked with was also the most diverse teaching staff that I experienced. Again, growing up in schools, in my clinical and student teaching placements. Um, And I think what's interesting and to kind of, you know, again, I know we'll talk more, but like why Abbott Elementary, that was immediately one of the things that stood out to me was my experience as a teacher was Yes, we know the teaching force is predominantly white women. Mm-hmm. We know that. And yet in urban schools, the ratio shifts, right? There are more Black, Brown, Latinx, like faculty of color, teachers of color teaching those students. And so I worked with a number of, and especially Black women, right? Um, and that that's who my colleagues were, who my friends were, who my mentors were in that space, um, which is one of the reasons why like the characters on Abbott Elementary just resonate, I think, so much because I think they are really reflective of the various types of teachers that we ha- that are in urban schools, right? Let's let's get into Abbott Elementary. Um When did you start watching and what were your first impressions? I started watching day (laughs) one. Um, And then when I sat down to watch the pilot, I remember having this feeling that like, it was just so refreshing because when I think about like the media portrayals that shaped my understanding of urban schools before I became a teacher in one, right? And so like I mentioned, that was my view. That was what I had, was how it was kind of portrayed in the news, in the media. I think about movies, and I'm man, I'm going to date myself here, but that's okay. Um, movies like Dangerous Minds, right? Or Freedom Riders. You know what this is? This is a fuck you to me and everyone in this class. I don't want excuses. I know what you're up against. We're all of us up against something. So you better make up your mind. Because until you have the balls to look me straight in the eye and tell me this is all you deserve, I am not letting you fail. Even if that means coming to your house every night until you finish the work. I see who you are. Do you understand me? I can see you. And you are not failing. Uh, 
honestly, Sister Act <laughs> 2, I do consider that a school movie with, an, with a crazy, awesome soundtrack. But, like, that is also about, you know, urban school. Um, TV shows like Boston Public, I remember that from, like, high school and college. Season 4 of The Wire, yes. right, where the whole season is focused on schools. And... For the most part, right, these were like serious mm-hmm. dramas. They were emotionally gripping. They painted this picture of like grittiness and often like danger, a lack of resources, a desperate need for like teachers to come in and save kids and save the school and often white teachers. Let's just be real. There are a lot of people who live in your neighborhood who choose not to get on that bus. What do they choose to do? They choose to go out and sell drugs. They choose to go out and kill people. They choose to do a lot of other things, but they choose not to get on that bus. The people who choose to get on that bus, which are you, are the people who are saying, I will not carry myself down to die. When I go to my grave, my head will be high. That is a choice. There are no victims in this classroom. And just immediately off the bat, the fact that Abbott was like this lighthearted, mockumentary style comedy was like a breath of fresh air. You know, that whole first pilot is, you know, they have, she wants a new rug for her (laughs) classroom. And I literally was like, oh, I remember that struggle. Like I had a donor's shoes project for my classroom rug. For primary classes, rugs are like a calming space for the kids. It's like a Xanax, like a huge Xanax for kids to sit on. And then, you know, the episode ends. I'm like, wow, this is really great. And then I kind of sat back for a moment and was like, whoa, they've also tackled some like really big issues and serious issues, like similar to those deep, gritty dramas. They talk very explicitly about school funding, teacher burnout, right? About like, you know, I remember Janine saying, you know, I'm going into my second year of teaching. There were 12 of us last year and now it's just me and Jacob left. And I was like, oh, that's real. Um, And it's only gotten better as the episodes and the seasons have gone on in terms of how they're integrating these really pressing issues like the charter school movement, um, which has kind of been a whole story arc for Mm -hmm. season two, right? It's in multiple episodes. It's kind of like a big, the big overarching issue. And I think what I appreciate about the show and the way it opens up conversations is it doesn't just allow for this binary thinking of like good, bad, yes, no. I think a lot of education issues get framed in this binary, right? This is the way to teach reading, which is a hot topic right now, right? You have to do it this way. And if you don't do it that way, you're wrong. And it's it's just so much messier than that. This episode is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Both on the podcast and off, something I love to talk about is therapy. I love to share about my own therapy practice, which I've been in for years. I also love to talk to people who are therapy curious or or maybe even scared off from therapy. If you are therapy curious or are looking to switch things up, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. There are also text message only options, which some folks find to be especially helpful. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And listen, you can switch your therapist at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com unladylike today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash unladylike. So what then prompted you to take Abbott from sort of an unofficial teaching tool to, hey, why don't I design a course around this? 
Illinois State sent out a call to all the faculty and said, hey, you know, we offer these interdisciplinary investigations. If you have a class you'd like to propose, you know, submit the proposal. Um, but the way I'm kind of envisioning the class is I'm seeing using the show and using particular episodes as an entry point to discuss these larger issues. So it's not, the class is not about critiquing the show itself. And the class is not about necessarily studying the show. Like I am not an expert. I'm not a media expert, right? Um, we're not going to do like deep character analysis. Of Jimmy, right? That's not really where we're at. But what we will do is read and explore an issue from, again, because it's interdisciplinary, from multiple perspectives. So from, for example, if we think about school funding, we can look at that from an economic perspective. Like, how does it actually work, right? We can look at it from an education perspective. We can look at it from a policy perspective, from a legal perspective, and so on. From a historical perspective, right? How has it changed and shifted over time? And then we'll watch selected episodes where that issue comes up or that issue is relevant. And we'll use that really as a jumping off point for conversation and discussion where we can say, okay, what is the issue? Like, what are the facts? What do we know? How is it being portrayed in Abbott Elementary? What aspects are the, of that issue are they showing or are they highlighting or are they really emphasizing? What might be some aspects that maybe they're not mentioning for a variety of reasons? And also, how does the perspective matter, right? Like, why does it matter that the show centers classroom teachers, students, right, the school? Um, and how does that change the way the issue might be presented? Um, and so this class is not going to be just education majors. And yet everyone is connected to education. All students and all people have a political investment in education, right? When we think about elections, it is very often, you know, a key point, right? And I think in these upcoming elections, given current issues, things like book bannings and curriculum mandates and, you know, how are we, how are we approaching diverse students and diverse experiences is even more so at the forefront of the political agenda right now. And so I think giving, giving students an opportunity to think through and talk about these complex issues, um, to me, I think is really just preparing them to be engaged mm -hmm. citizens. In your like training at like when you were in school to become a teacher, I'm also curious if, if any of the college courses that you were taking, the classroom discussions that you were having, if they also focused on equity, educational equity and racial dynamics in classrooms, both on the student side, obviously, but among teachers as well? Yes and no. Yes, we talked about it. I think the way we talked about it sometimes was good and sometimes I think did support this kind of white savior teacher mentality. Like I said, you know, I left thinking I want to be Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, no, that's not not the end goal. But I think, I do think that that's an area where teacher preparation has made major improvements, major strides. The work that we're doing is much more conscious of not only, again, how do we prepare teachers to go into diverse classrooms, but how do we recruit and retain teachers of color? I do have to ask if there were any particular yeah. experiences that were pivotal to your unlearning of the white saviorism? In my first or second year of teaching, um, we kind of started an incentive program, right? Um, for like attendance and grades and behavior and all the things. And my 
colleagues and I were like on our grade level team, we're sitting around trying to plan out what should these incentives be. And again, we, you know, this was in Washington, D.C. So there are just so many options of where do we take kids and all the Smithsonian's are free, right? Um, and I made essentially a comment along the lines of, you know, like, well, we need to um, take them places that they don't ever go. And I remember one of my Black women mentor colleagues calling me out and saying, what makes you think that they don't go? right? Like they live here. What, what assumptions are you making that the only way our students go to the Smithsonian is with us? And I, you know, immediately said, yeah, you're right. I'm like, I am sorry. That was, that was my bad. And I, I'm wrong, you know? And so I think that it's, it's those little things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's also the, I think I was lucky enough or fortunate enough to work in places, like I said, that that had a diverse teaching faculty, right? That had the folks there and not only, right, um, diverse in terms of racially and, and experientially, but many of the teachers I work with were from DC, mm. which is also unusual. A lot of teachers don't live where they work, especially in urban schools. And so, for example, I think about if I had been in that situation with a group of predominantly white teachers who maybe all shared the same mentality, nobody would have said anything. And I think one of the things that's so interesting is we see that play out on the show so often. We see the way that Barbara will say like, this is wrong, but I don't really have the energy to do this. And then Melissa, I love their <laughs> friendship. It's just so beautiful. And in real life, like the actresses, are, their friendship is just so beautiful. You know, the white character will step in and say like, well, I can take on this emotional labor and I can call it out and I can get them in line. Um, and so I think that dynamic is so important to add to the show. Taking the Abbott Elementary asset forward, joy forward approach to mm -hmm. it, what yes. makes it worth it? What has, I mean, I know you're in higher ed now, but like what, what has kept you mm -hmm. in it? I mean, I think it is important to acknowledge the challenges that teachers particularly right now are facing, right? I think when you compound COVID, right, and that pivot, I mean... I was not in the classroom during that. I was in higher ed during that. And that was hard. And I can't imagine, right, doing that with our with our younger kiddos. Um, and, right, kind of the political realities of the challenges that teachers are facing right now. I think that is what it comes back to for me. I think the other thing that I think about when it comes to balancing kind of the challenges and, you know, why continue to do this work is because it is so needed. It is hard to imagine what society would be without public school teachers. Um, and so I think it also is purpose-driven, right? Like this work matters. It matters. Um, and again, that can, that can be a double-edged sword. I think that's part of what contributes to, you know, burnout culture and like sacrifice yourself at all costs. And I don't support that or believe in that at all. I'm like, <laughs> right. But also it can be really great to know, you know, when I show up to work at 7.30 in the morning, what I'm about to do today matters. It does matter. Y'all know what the biggest never not thrilling compliment is for me as a podcaster? Do you know? It's when I hear from teachers who use unladylike in the classroom or include it in their syllabus. It thrills me to no end. And past, present, future educators listening, I would love to hear from you. And I'll pose the same question I did to Sarah and Jada. 
Is there anything you wish got more attention beyond pay teachers more and resource them better? Which, again, fully support. Like, are there more nuanced conversations around teaching that you wish happened? I would love to hear your teacher thoughts. Send your voice memos or emails to hello at unladylike.co or you can DM them to me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Thank you so much to Jada Wooten and Sarah Jones for taking the time to talk to me and for being the kinds of teachers who would fit right in in the Abbott Elementary break room. A few organizations who are doing important work around education equity that Jada recommends are the Equity Institute, the National Equity Project, and the Black Teacher Project. And listeners, if you'd like to support an independent podcaster who talks about and to teachers, then you need to join the Unladies Room. Last week in the Unladies Room, I talk about the buzzy movie previously mentioned on Unladylike when it was still in development when author Casey McQuiston was on the podcast talking about red, white, and royal blue. I watched it, I reviewed it, and I'd love to know what you think. Patreon.com slash media is where you can go. Find the Unladies Room. Come on in for just $5 a month. That's all. Unladylike is an Unladylike media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. What is the most unladylike thing about you? The most unladylike thing about me is honestly probably probably like my mouth, like just my willingness to speak up. Like I was talking with my boyfriend the other day and he was like, honestly, like your confidence is appealing and also scary. Like like the, the other day, like in the ice cream store, someone was like, you can't get two samples. I'm like, what are you talking about? I came here last week and you gave me two samples. Like, and so like the fact that like, I'm just not afraid to say what's on my mind. Um, is like, I guess, perceived as unladylike, even though it was kind of colonization slavery that forced the standard of lady and manlike. But yes, I feel like that's one of the things that would be perceived in society as unladylike. What is the most unladylike thing about you? I think the being loud about things, but knowing when to take a step back.